0: It's good to see everybody out this morning, especially our visitors. We're always happy to have you, and we do invite you back at each and every opportunity that you have to be with us. And so uh, just uh, take some time after service to get to know us so that we can get to know you and that uh, you are our honored guest. When we talk about the church, we realize that there has always been problems that have confronted the church. We can read in Acts chapter 5 that dishonesty was something that took place with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. We can find in the book of Acts where persecution was something that was very prevalent. That people died because they were Christians or children of God. Gnosticism was another problem that we can read about in 1 John. False teachers in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Immorality. We can see a problem with immorality in the church at Corinth in the 5th chapter and the entire book, pretty much. We also see a problem of division. God's people should not be divided. In fact, in First Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 10, it says, "...now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment." And so when we look out there in the religious world today and we see all the division out there, it's contrary to what the the Word of God tells us. And when there's division in God's church, we realize also that that's contrary to God's will. We also see in James chapter 2 that prejudice was something that was addressed. And we're not to show favoritism. It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter how rich someone is or how poor someone is or whatever condition of education they may have. They're all souls in God's sight. And we need to be concerned about all of those things. Those are problems that have been faced since the, the, the first century, but they still are prevalent today in our society and in the church. And there are many problems that we face, but I want to talk about one in particular, because you know I haven't heard the name mentioned so much lately or in the last few years, and that's liberalism. But just because we may not use that term, when we look out into different congregations across this nation, we can see that it is something that is prevalent. It is something that is taking place and it needs to be addressed. In Jude chapter three or verse three, it tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. We know that that faith was once delivered. It's been given to us by God. And the only way that I can know that faith is through the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, and verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so if I want my faith to be what God wants it to be, I have to get into His Word and study it and rightly divide it and put it into practice in my life. It's not enough to just go through life and say, "Well, I'm doing what I think is good and what feels good in my heart and God, you know, I got to be right with God." The only way I can be right with God is to get into his word and do what God has told me to do in his precious word. And so we see what Peter tells us that we are to that we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. brother. we need to be able to to withstand false uh, teachings that are out there in the, in the religious world, and sometimes in the church. And we need to be able to defend those things. And we need to be able to give people an answer concerning the hope that we have. Why? Because we want people to be saved. And we realize that souls are precious. And that every soul is precious in the sight of God. But salvation is only to those that obey our Lord. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but He that doeth the will of My Father which is in heaven. I want to go to heaven. That means I have to do God's will if that's where I want to go. And that's what you need to do also if you want to get to heaven. And so we must be ready always to give an answer concerning that hope that we have that's in our lives. But when we talk about liberalism, the question is, where did it begin? Well, it always begins where others have uh, have, have begun. In the old uh, eighteen, well, in the eighteen uh, hundreds, there was a man by the name of Frederick Schellemacher. and he was called the father of modern liberal theology. In other words, he cast doubt on some of the things that the scriptures teach. He didn't want to accept those things. And today, modern uh, uh, liberalism is in the same place. We cast doubt upon what the Bible teaches. And many people out there in the religious world want to change what God's Word says or ignore some of the things that it says. And there are some that do not believe everything that the Bible teaches. Present-day liberalism begins in the same place with a denial of the complete inspiration of the Bible. And never forget that point. Because my, my argument is, if I can pick out this passage and say that that's not inspired by God, then I can pick out all of the Scriptures and say, those aren't inspired by God. It's either all or nothing in my book. That's the way I look at it. God's Word is something that is precious. God's Word is something that each one of us need to understand that that is the Word of God. We also see that the word that is often associated with liberalism is accommodate. Liberalism is an attempt to accommodate Christianity into human philosophies. We want God to agree with us. You know, we would never erect an idol. We would never build one ourselves and bow down to it. But isn't that exactly what people do with God, when that they try to recreate God in their image, where He says what they want Him to say? They expect, or God expects out of them what they want. God isn't like that. God is God. He's the same yesterday. He'll be the same today, and He'll be the same in the future. God doesn't change. He had a plan from the very beginning that Jesus would come to this earth and He would die for our sins. That a church would be established that Jesus would build and that we could be a part of it. And that we needed to be in that church in order to be saved. All of those are from God's Word and that's what we need to understand. And we need to be able to teach it to others. And so let us study some facts that, that we need to look at when it concerns fault, the false idea that God's Word is not inspired. There are some cardinal points of liberalism. And as you look at the screen, you can see four of those items. That Christianity is just one of many religions. There's nothing unique about it. That the Bible is not the Word of God. It contains errors, myths, and fables. You know, they look at some of the things that is told, and it seems impossible because in their minds it, 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 it doesn't make sense. I've heard people argue that Jonah could not have been swallowed by a whale, because or a fish, great fish. That's just impossible to survive. And so therefore they discard that. It's, it's not important. It's just a myth. And they look at some of the miracles that Jesus did and say those could not have happened. Here's the problem that people forget. When you put God in the, in the equation, all of those things are possible. When you leave God out, then yeah, it does sound like a fable, doesn't it? The Bible says God prepared a fish that swallowed Jonah. They say religious authority is established by religious experience. And thus, man is his own standard of authority in interpreting the Bible. They reject the divinity of Christ, that He was not born of a virgin. Sin is only selfishness and self-centeredness. That Man is in the process of evolving and will soon outgrow these personality problems. And as far as the truth is concerned, you can't know the truth. There is no absolute truth. Well, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They believe that Bible doctrines aren't important. Just agree on what Jesus says, you know, that's all you got, all that matters. And be good. And they believe that miracles didn't happen. So I think that we can readily see the dangers and wrongs of each of of these teachings. Now, someone may practice liberalism and not practice all of those things or teach all of those things. They may just look at certain things and say, that's what I believe. The the Bible isn't true. It's It's not from God. That it's just a myth, that there are fables in it. That may be something that they want to believe. But let's look at some of these things that they say. I'm not going to look at all of those that I put on the screen, but I want to look at some of those things. For one, the Bible is from God. It is a verbal, plenary, fully inherent, inspired Word of God. Paul said that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. That means that it's God-breathed. That when writers of God's Word, they wrote, and you can see their personalities in those words, but you also see that they wrote the words that God wanted them to write. Its integrity of the Bible can be proven. When you look at some of the prophecies in the Old Testament and you see those prophecies fulfilled, you can look at prophecies concerning Christ and coming to this earth and you see that He was going to be born of a virgin. You can see that He was going to be born in Bethlehem. You can see all the different things that prophesied concerning Christ and all of those things came to pass. You can see the prophecy concerning the church that Isaiah had and Daniel had. You can see those prophecies and you see them fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when the church was established. So you look at prophecies and we don't have enough time to go into detail on the prophecies, but that's an interesting study when you look at some of the things that were prophesied, that they did take place. And that shows us the inspiration. Why? Because many times the prophecy came hundreds of years before it was fulfilled. Isaiah said that Jesus would be born of a virgin roughly 750 years before He was born of a virgin. It was written, the Bible was written by over 40 men over a 1,500 year period of time. That's really incredible. When you think about it, it's consistent all the way through. The plan that God had, that Christ was coming to this earth, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you see a prophecy concerning Christ, and you see that fulfilled. Those writers all had various backgrounds, but yet, interestingly enough, they all tell the same story, they're consistent. We can see also that Jesus, I guess we're done with that, was born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Before they were married, the angel visited Joseph to confirm that Mary had conceived a child through the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. As I just mentioned, Isaiah had prophesied that hundreds of years before this announcement came from the angel to Joseph. And when the child was born, they were to name Him Jesus. But Matthew understood the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies and he delivers this revelation where he says, "...now this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, He is God with us." It's found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. You see, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy because He was literally God with us. He came to this earth and He took on the form of flesh. He was 100% man, but He was also 100% deity. He was still God while He was here on this earth, but He was also man while He was here on this earth. He came to this world to live among people and to leave us an example. And Matthew recognized that Jesus as Emmanuel, the living expression of incarnation. It was a miracle the Son of God becoming a human being and making His home among us so that He could live that life of an example and then reveal God to us as He lived that life and then eventually die on the cross for your sins and mine. You see, Jesus was God with us manifested in human flesh as it tells us in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. We also know that Christianity is exclusive. It stands alone. Now people may not like to hear that. They may not want to believe that. But that's what the Bible teaches us, that Christianity stands alone as the only hope for the world Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 24, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples, that's those that were followers of Christ, were called Christians first at Antioch. Why were they called Christians? Because they were followers of Christ. And what does that word Christian mean? Christ-like. Now when we go out into the world, the people should be able to look at your life and see whether or not you're representing Christ or you're representing the enemy. Because that's what a disciple, that's what a Christian does. We represent Christ when we go out into this world. We don't get to lay down that coat. We don't get to take that off and say, well... This is only on Sunday, and when I go to work, I can be whoever I want to be and do whatever I want to do. No, I'm a Christian every day of the week, every hour of the day. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, "...neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Muhammad's not going to save us. Buddha's not going to save us. The only one that can save people is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you and me. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He's the author of eternal salvation. And he tells us right there that we need to obey him if we want to have that salvation. He learned obedience. He was obedient to his father while he was here on his earth. He expects us to be obedient to the Father also. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Oh, you hear people say today there's many different ways to get to heaven. Many different ways to get to God. But Jesus says He's the way. He's the only way. And that's what we need to follow. You see, man is also a rebellious sinner. It's just not a personality problem. It's not something that we're going to evolve out of. We are rebellious people. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Sin separates us from God. Sin is a choice that you and I make in this life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter four or chapter three and verse ten that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one's righteous. In verse or chapter three and verse twenty-three of that same book it says, "We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God." Personality problems are a result of sin. We turn away from God. Sin is missing. The mark. It's a transgression of the law, as 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us. We've missed the mark. We're aiming to do what's right. We've missed it. We did something wrong. And sin when we have we sin when we're drawn away by our own lust. It's our own desire. That temptation is placed there is because something is something that we may want or we're tempted to give into. What do we do with that sin? We talked about that in our Bible class this morning. What do we do when that that thought comes into our mind? We either entertain it and then act upon it and go ahead and do whatever it is, or we say, I'm not supposed to think that, and I get rid of that thought and I throw it out of my mind and replace it with something that's good. But sin is a choice that we make. Christianity is also authoritative. As we've already said, Jesus is the only way. His work was an authoritative confirmation of His person and His words. In John chapter 14, and verse 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but of the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Jesus, by the life that he was living here on this earth, was doing his Father's will. And in fact, in John chapter 14 and verse 11, it says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So, what he was doing, how he was living, what he was teaching was from God. He came to this earth to show us what we need to do and how we need to live. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, "...and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name." This Bible was written for a purpose. Those words are recorded for you and me so that you and I can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And therefore... We can have a hope of salvation when we obey His will. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, wherefore He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised him from the dead. Jesus is going to be our judge someday. And I often think about that when people will tell me, you know, you read the Scripture to them, let them read the Scripture, and you say, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, I know what it says, but that's not what it means. And I don't think you've got to do that. And sometimes I've heard people say that when it's very plain English that is spoken in, that Jesus tells us what we need to do in order to be saved. When Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, that seems pretty simple to me. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If Jesus would have said, He that believeth and is baptized shall receive a million dollars, you know what? We wouldn't have any trouble understanding what we had to do to get a million dollars. But when He says something as simple as believe and be baptized and you'll be saved, we don't quite understand it. Now, We're going to stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day. He knows what He said. He knows what we read in His Word. Now let me ask, how do you think it's going to stand up on the day of judgment? When you say, well, I know what it said, but... I didn't think you really meant that. He knows what he meant. And you know what? We know what he meant too. It's not too hard to understand. Sometimes we just don't want to understand it because we don't want to do it. You see, God's word today is the final authority. I can't change it. God said it, that's enough. You know, I hear that expression, God said it, I believe it, therefore that settles it. Well, I'm sorry to say, God said it, whether I believe it or not, that settles it. God said it, and He's the final authority. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to His word, it is because there is no light in them. What's implied in that scripture? without God's Word in our heart, we're in darkness. That if we're not saying what God says, we're in darkness. We're lost. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 48, "...He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not My words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day." On that final day... When Jesus is our judge, he tells us the standard that we're going to be judged by. and that's His word. We ready to be judged by those words? In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9, Jesus said, "In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We may come up with something that sounds good, but if it's not Scripture, if it's not God's will, it's no good. We need to understand that. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. <clears throat> all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Either God has given us what we need in order to be saved. And He's given us what we need in order to live a faithful life. Or He has not. <clears throat> so now listen to what Peter says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, "...according to His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue." Peter tells us very simply, God's given us everything that we need to live a good life and to be godly in this life. God's given us those things. Now, where did that come from? Where do we got it? How do we know what it is? Through the Word of God. God's Word is the final authority. I don't have the authority to change what God's Word says. Is there times I'd like to compromise to make someone feel better? Yeah. Make them feel better. Make me feel better. But guess what? I have to tell people what the Bible says because the Bible tells me that if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You say what God's Word says or keep your mouth shut. And there's a lot of preachers on TV that need to keep their mouth shut. And on the internet, and on the radio, and in a lot of other places, Christianity pleased God in the early church. We look in Acts and other uh, books of the New Testament. We can see there was things that they did that God was pleased with. Also, there were things that He was displeased with. If you remember the list that I talked about, dishonesty, immorality, uh, things of that nature, God wasn't pleased with and tried to straighten people up. But there were things that they did that was approved. They met on the first day of the week. And when they met up on the first day of the week, they prayed. They gave of their means. They sang. There was teaching that took place, and they partook of the Lord's Supper. All of those are important. We see that all practiced in Acts chapter 20, verse seven, First Corinthians chapter 16, verses one and two, and Ephesians chapter five and verse 19. We don't have instruments because we don't see instruments in the New Testament. We don't see a practice in worship to God in the New Testament church. And so we sing. We may sound good. We may not sound so good to you. But we're doing what God says do. And when we pray, we're talking to our Father in Heaven. And when we give back, we're giving back of something that God has blessed us with. And we're showing our love for Him in giving back. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross in the memorial that He instituted before His death. And then as we assemble, we hear God's words preached. And that's what we all strive to hear. We want to hear those things. We also know that the Scripture teaches us that there's only one church. In Ephesians chapter four, verses one through four, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. My concern this morning is, what is that one body that is mentioned there in verse 4? There's only one body. There's not multiple bodies. Because Christ is the head of the church, and think about it, if there was multiple bodies, that would just be some kind of monster that He created. But that's not what He's talking about. It's one head and one body. And we've already seen that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that there should be no division. Well, so there's not a division, or shouldn't be it, but there's one church that Jesus came to this earth to build. And that one church is the body of Christ. How do I know that? Because Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 tells us, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. <clears throat> What's Paul saying? Christ is the head of the church. It's the body. It's not mine. It's not yours. We may be a part of it when we obey the Gospel. But it's His church. What gives me the authority or gives you the authority or anyone else for that matter the authority to change anything that God has put in His Word and expects us to practice in this life? His plan... Of salvation includes baptism. One item that so many in the world say we don't need to practice in order to be saved. But Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And on the day of Pentecost, when they heard the gospel, they cried, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent <clears throat> and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And when you look at other examples in the book of Acts, they were baptized. And that baptism isn't Holy Spirit baptism, that was water baptism. There's only two occasions that we can find in the New Testament where there was Holy Spirit descended and uh, and was baptized. Where on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were uh, were there to uh, receive that Holy Spirit, as Jesus had said was going to take place in John chapter 14 through 16, and then also in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. This one baptism is immersion, a burial in water where we come up. A new creature in Christ. The picture is described in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer to a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Baptism saves us. Does that mean that that's all I have to do? Would that save me? Well, if I have to believe, how do I know what to believe? I have to hear the Word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17. Then I have to believe, as Jesus said in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Then I must repent of my sins, turn away from those things, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5. And I have to confess Him before men, as He tells me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. And then I need to be buried with my Lord in baptism. As he said in Mark chapter 16, 15-16, and, and we see practice on the day of Pentecost and in various other chapters in the book of Acts. That's God's plan. We can't change God's plan. And so this morning, what I want us to understand is that we must remain true to God's Word. We can't compromise it. We can't change it. We can't say, well, this is what I think, and we can ignore the Scripture. The Scripture's there for a reason. We need to be doers of what God's Word teaches. It's not enough just to hear it. We need to do it. And that's what Jesus tells us about the parable of the, of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built because he heard and did. He built according to the plan. The foolish man heard, but he didn't do what he was supposed to do. One house stood and the other one fell. The one was, that stood was the wise man. And brethren, we're wise people when we obey God's will. And that's what tr- Jesus is trying to show us. And that if we're going to speak, if we're going to tell people what they need to do in order to be saved, if we're going to go out into the world and preach the Gospel, then we need to speak as the oracles of God. If I stand up here and I proclaim uh, uh, anything that I teach, it needs to be from God's Word. And we can prove it's from God's Word. Because Peter says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And then we also need to believe that we can know the truth. You see, sometimes we say we know the truth, we believe the truth, but our actions betray us. We don't really put it into practice in our lives. We trust him when it's convenient, we believe him when it's convenient. But sometimes we struggle. In John chapter eight and verse thirty-two, we shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. John eight chapter, or John chapter eight verse thirty-six. If the Son therefore make you free, He shall be free indeed. This morning, if you understand that you're lost, that you haven't taken care of your sin the way God's word prescribes, then I would encourage you to make things right. Do what you need to do. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. Be buried with our Lord in baptism. To have your sins washed away. To rise up to walk in newness of life. And as the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, you can go on your way rejoicing this morning, knowing that you've done what God wanted you to do in order to have your sins washed away. As a Christian, sometimes we sin. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we, we, we make God a liar. The truth is not in us. We also know from 1 John chapter 1 that if we as a Christian will confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. If you need our prayers this morning, if you'd like to be baptized into Christ, come and have a seat up here on the front row. You have that opportunity while we stand sing.